Probably several of you are wondering where Roger is. Well, he's with our friend Jim Floyd in Port Townsend listening to Stan Hudson. So he's in church. <laughs> I will be reading Romans 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, you are inexcusable, old man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So from the time my sister Janine was a little girl, she has loved fashion. My Auntie Joy would give her outdated Vogue magazines, and Janine would cut out the pictures of those beautiful women in those beautiful clothes and tape them all over her bedroom wall when she was seven and eight. Being a fashionista, when she became a teenager, her favorite pastime was looking at clothes at South Center the nearest mall. She didn't have much money, but she knew that she could just absorb great fashion sense by hanging out at Nordstrom's. She would have gone shopping every single day if she could. Unfortunately, neither our mother or father liked to shop, so she didn't get to the mall nearly as often as she wanted to. But then she received her driver's license, and she was delighted that now she could go to the mall without mom and dad. She usually lived in the dorm at Auburn Academy, but she dreamed up a plan for the next home leave. Our friends, the Knutsons, lived in California, but they left a car at our house that they would use whenever they came north. The keys were in a bowl by the telephone at the end of the kitchen counter. Once mom and dad headed for work, she would dress up, borrow the Knutson's car, and have an entire day to window shop and try on clothes. A whole day. Daddy came home from Boeing at four, so she simply had to get home before then. The appointed morning arrived and transpired exactly according to plan. But then Daddy decided to come home at noon, thinking he'd take her and Nanette to lunch and have a chance for some father-daughter time. When he didn't find Janine at home and he didn't see the Knudsen's car, he had a pretty good hunch where she had gone. So we went to South Center and drove around until he found the car. He opened the hood 
and removed the alternator. Then he closed the hood and drove back to work and waited for her phone call. And then he did one last thing. He called the police and reported the car stolen. Janine emerged from her perfect day at the mall just in time to make it home before four. She was frantic when the car wouldn't start. Ever resourceful, she called AAA. They came with gas and a way to jump the car, but it still wouldn't start. Now it's well past four, and she knew Daddy was now home, and she knew what she had to do. She called home. She needed help, and she knew Daddy was the only one who could help her. She was more desperate than she was afraid of what punishment she might receive. And so she told our father the whole story, and with humble tears, she asked, her, asked him to forgive her for going behind his back. He said he thought he knew exactly what the car needed, and he would be there in 15 minutes. He called the police and told them the car had been found and was in the process of being returned. He jumped into his car and headed for South Center. He drove right to where she was parked, jumped out and hugged her and then reached for the missing alternator and quickly put it back in place. Her eyes grew wide as she realized why the car wouldn't start, that her daddy was smart enough to teach her not to sneak. No lecture necessary. Janine told me this story less than a year ago. I had never heard it. My parents never talked about it in front of me, either that night or down the years since then. They received her apology, forgave her, and treated her as if it had never happened. You know what you call that? Grace. There, here is the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. But the gospel tells us, I messed up. I need to call my dad. So when you find yourself in a mess or a breakdown and a way you can't think your way out of, try calling your heavenly father. He already knows what you've done. He already knows everything that's been done to you. And he loves you still. And he knows exactly what to do. He has the parts you need in his hand. Just tell him about it and be amazed at how kind and merciful he really is. Even when you've sinned, he is not your enemy. He is your father, and he's on your side. St. Augustine had Psalm 32 inscribed above his bed, so he would be reminded of it as soon as he woke up every morning. And he wrote, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself a sinner. What a way to start your day, to know oneself a sinner. And I read this, and I wondered if you could um, identify with it. Dear Lord, 
So far today, I'm doing all right. I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or self-indulgent. I have not eaten, I, I have not whined, cursed, or eaten any chocolate. However, I'm going to get out of bed in a few minutes, and I will be in a lot more need of help after that. Maybe that realization that we are sinners, that iniquity actually describes the state of being that we live in. Before we even get out of bed, we are sinners. Maybe that would be helpful. Maybe the first thing we need to do every morning is to find our knees and to say, I need grace and I need mercy. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've been reading J.I. Packer's book, Rediscovering Holiness, and he proposes that Christians are called to a life of habitual repentance. He explains that this discipline is essential, foundational to healthy, holy living. The very first of Luther's 95 theses, I wonder if we had Roland here, if he could tell us, do you know what the first thesis is? It says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. Written in 1517, is it still true today that our lives need to be undergirded with habitual repentance. Think about the times when it's rained so hard that the storm drains can't deal with the massive amount of rain on the road. They're filled to capacity, unable to deal with the volume of water. Sometimes in about March in May, in Maine, we'd have still several feet of snow accumulated over months and then the weather would turn warm. We even had Chinooks there, even though we were a long way from Chinook. And suddenly it would begin to rain on this mountain of snow. The snow would melt, but the ground underneath the snow was still frozen. And the water had nowhere to go. Our garage would flood, sometimes two or three inches of water. And we would scramble, as we knew it was coming, to, to move everything up off the floor. And then it would freeze again. And the, as it would plummet, we'd have a solid sheet of ice, not only in our driveway, but in our garage. So I need to just say, I'm thanking the Lord. I'm getting ready for a Washington winter this year not a main winter. But even more dangerously, when that rain would come upon the snow, the running water would overwhelm the storm sewers. It would wash out roads and render them impassable. And this is what J.I. Packer says, repentance is the drainage pipe on the highway to holiness. The drainage pipe. Um, drainage pipes are not too glamorous. 
They don't even show and we don't even think about them when they're working well. What repentance does, like a drainage pipe, is done in private. Those heart-to-heart conversations with God, with no one else listening in. And what repentance does is it provides a way for the dirt, the rubbish, and the muddy floodwaters of everyday life as a sinner needs to be channeled away so we can again have a relationship with God and have a way to be like him. So we can go about our lives with open, loving spirits instead of being incapacitated by our mistakes of yesterday or last week or last year or 10 years ago. Repentance is essential because wherever repentance is neglected, spiritual advancement ceases. Have you ever heard of developmental arrest? I could ask Mike, I know he knows. Developmental arrest is when in the formative years, someone has a traumatic experience, and then they're not able to continue to grow emotionally after that. They get stuck. Well, the lack of repentance creates spiritual developmental arrest. When we don't deal with the backlog of all that sin that we are carrying around, suddenly we cannot trust God. We cannot see him as a father who loves us. We lose our joy and everything becomes a drudgery and God seems way far away. Anybody been there? How often are you there when there is such a simple remedy for our malaise and for our sin? So J.I. Packer says that we must form and retain a conscious discipline of repenting as often as you need to. Well, how often do you need to? Every day? Several times a day? The goal is to find our knees and repent as closely to the sin event as possible. And sometimes the word is coming out of my mouth and I'm already saying, Lord, have mercy. I shouldn't have said that. Lord, have mercy. That was a criticism. That was a complaint. Before any collateral damage and the weight of that sin on our back does more damage, we need to repent. So we need to keep our drains clean and clear of debris so that yesterday's junk won't pollute today's living for Jesus. We've got to do it. So what is repentance? The official definition is very scholarly. According to Packer, it is the abandonment of the course of action in which one defied God by embracing what he dislikes and forbids. Okay, abandonment of a course of action. And some of us have some courses of action that we need to abandon. 
That's what repentance is. When I teach juniors, I use a much simpler way to explain it. It's a U-turn. You're going the wrong direction, and you realize you're going the wrong direction, and you have to turn around. So you do, and you're going back the opposite way. By the way, that's actually what both the Hebrew and the Greek word for repentance means, is U-turn. Pretty cool. Changing one's mind and changing one's direction. That's what repentance is. Well, when we were in seminary, Mark and I joined a discipleship group based on the Navigator's 2-7 discipleship series. It encouraged the usual daily Bible reading and reflection, scripture memory, witnessing, we got to practice giving our um, testimonies, and small group accountability. The most important thing I learned from the Navigators is a diagram that they use to explain 2 Timothy 3.16. And I just have to say, if you ever want to find this verse again, remember that it's in 2 Timothy, and it's the same verse as John 3.16, which is what Jesus did to save us. And this is actually another thing that Jesus did to save us, is to give us the scripture. It says, all scripture is God-breathed, and is useful. Are you finding God's word to be useful? Is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. Are you all thoroughly equipped? If not, go back to the word. That's what equips us for service equipped for every good work. Okay, so let's take this one step at a time. First of all, scripture is good for teaching. If you have a King James Bible, it will say doctrine. Basically, doctrine is everything the Bible tells us about who God is, who we are, what God has done, and what God wants us to do. It's good, solid biblical teaching is good doctrine. And you know, having good doctrine is really important. Just think of the damage that the doctrine of eternal hellfire has done to people's lives. I'm so thankful that we have a picture of a God that does not do that. So, We'll call doctrine the path. The problem is no human being is capable of staying on the path. We all head out in our own way. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. How many? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We get off the path. So now our diagram looks like this. Okay, we're on our way down. And without repentance, that arrow just continues down. It does not stop. There is nothing applied to it if repentance doesn't happen, and we're on our way down. Okay. We could spend our lifetime off the path, getting further and further away from God's will. 
But if we are in the word, the spirit can reprove us. And that's good news, right? If we are in the word, God says, okay, wake up. Not a good idea. Where you're going is going to lead you where you don't want to be. And that reproof is actually God loving us. Do we believe that? That when the word reproves us, God is saying, I care enough about you to speak truth into your life. And what you're doing will not work. It could be a story. It could be a warning. It could be a promise. And you know, after decades of daily Bible study, it never ceases to amaze me how I always read exactly what I need. It doesn't matter where I am for the day, and I always follow a plan. Where I am for the day, somehow God can use that particular place in scripture to speak to me and reprove me. It's just getting the Bible open and our hearts open and quiet, and then God can, can talk to us. God will use his word to be a gentle rebuke, a firm hand on our knees that says, hey, don't go there. Let's talk about this first. The word for confession, by the way, is homologeo, which means I speak the same word. I agree. So think about homogenized milk, where the fat and the milk is all mixed up together. And logo, which means word. Confession is agreeing with God. So confession can be something positive. We can confess truths like Jesus is Lord. We can confess truths like Jesus died for my sins and saved me. Or we can speak the same about the sin in our life, like I just lied. I know lying is a sin. I know this dishonors you, God. Please help me. Being in the word reminds us at heart level what God thinks. Do we need to know what God thinks? Absolutely. And how God feels. There's some things he really gets angry about. Like injustice. Doesn't like injustice. And we need the word because God calls something sin that we with our own rational, natural brain, would not call sin. Like killing a baby with a heartbeat, if you've been reading the news about Texas. That is why we need regular, methodical exposure to how God thinks. Because then he can help to change our hearts and minds to match, to be on the same level as what he thinks. The word is our constant reminder that we're not God and that we're a long way from where he is and that we need to repent. So Hebrews 4.12 describes how this works. It says, the word of God is living and active. Have you ever experienced his word to be living? That's how it can, you can put you in exactly the right place when you open it. Sharper than any two-edged sword, 
It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the hearts, the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So if we will get into the word, the word will become the reproof that we need. And that's really good news. And it continues in verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Is that good news or bad news? Could be both. It depends on if you have come clean with God. The fact that he knows everything, you know, we just have to put that into some of our good doctrine, that we, we really understand that God knows everything. And then it says, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything uncovered. No hiding our sins. You know, I'm so thankful for clothes because my clothes can hide my sins, right? Like, just need to say that. But when we are before God, we are uncovered and naked before him. So time in the word reminds us of what God thinks and what he sees when he looks into our hearts and minds. And when we truly desire to be like God, we will welcome the rebuke. We will want his warnings as soon as possible so we can quickly realign ourselves and live with his, I love the last phrase here, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's what he wants. That's what the word can help us do, is realign. We're able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Because it's never his will to hurt us or to cause us unnecessary pain. It's always his will to bless us and to lead us into the life that he's imagined, the abundant life. So Psalm 139, which explicitly teaches that God sees and knows everything about us, finishes with a proper response to this knowledge that God knows everything. Verse 23 and 24 conclude the prayer that he will show us what he sees. And I call this the show me prayer, where you're saying, okay, God, tell me what you see in me. Tell me what you see when you look at my life and my habits. You're asking for divine knowledge of who you really are. No hiding is necessary. In fact, this is exactly the opposite. This is saying God who knows everything, show me what you know about me, the stuff I can't even begin to comprehend. Show me, God, what you see. This is welcoming his rebuke because we want more than anything to honor him and to please him. But just knowing that we are sinners and that we have not done the acceptable thing in his sight will not solve the problem. So the next function of the word that we find in 2 Timothy 3.16 is correcting. God can only correct 
the mess we've made with a contingency plan that the Trinity agreed before the foundation of the world. He promises to forgive our sins and to cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. The only way that he can correct the horrible mess that we have created is to die in our place. So correction is not only correcting us, but it's providing correction for the sins of the entire human race. The Bible's description of salvation was there from the foundation of the world. God doesn't say, okay, now clean your act up. Can we? Can a leopard change his spots? Can we clean our act up once we realize we've blown it? Instead, he says, talk to me about what you've done. Trust me. Remember, I died for you. I'll help you. We'll do this one step at a time. I was listening to a Timothy Keller on Psalm 32 this week, and he pointed out that we can over, often overlook one idea that's there in 1 John 1.9. It says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Does that word just work in this verse? Is God ever just to forgive our sins? It doesn't say he is faithful and merciful to forgive our sins, but this says he's faithful and just. How can God be just for forgiving our sins when we confess them? Shouldn't we have to make reparations? Isn't that what the law demands, that we make reparations? Should we pay for the damages done? It can only be just for him to forgive us if he makes the reparations. And the good news is, he has. Jesus died to provide forgiveness for the very sin that we are today confessing right now. Romans 3, verses 1 through 26 says this, But now righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. To whom? All who believe. There is no difference. Okay, and then the next verse is kind of sobering. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, I know you know this, but because we're all recovering legalists, I want you to take a good look at this verse. How many have sinned? All. Does that include you? Absolutely. And this falling short of the glory of God, is that past tense? Or is it present tense? Yeah, both. In fact, it's aorist tense, which is continuous action. We all will continue to fall short of the glory of God until the day Jesus comes back. We will have to repent, and we will have to confess. Every morning, you and I come into God's presence, not with the pride for the sin we have overcome, 
but with a profound gratitude that we're awake and alive for another day. And he has not executed judgment on yesterday's sin. Really? We'd all be toast. Or as a Korean preacher once described, we'd be in deep kimchi. Now that's a description, isn't it? That we'd be in deep kim, kim, kimchi. What do you think that would smell like to be in deep kimchi? We deserve to die, but we are alive today. Why? Because of grace, because of Jesus. And then it says, and we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this, why? To demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He had to say, I, we have to let Jesus carry out this plan that includes him dying alone on the cross with my face turned away to show you that I am just when I forgave David, when I forgave Moses, Samuel, whoever else in the Old Testament was forgiven. He did this to demonstrate his justice. So the cross shows us not only God's mercy, but God's judgment. It would not be fair for God to simply forgive our sins. Instead, he paid the penalty of the broken law. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. We can know he's just at the present time so as to both be just and the one who justifies those, that's you and I, who have faith in Jesus. So that's pretty beautiful. That's the gospel, that he paid the price. In Psalm 51, 13, David is praying, and he has just been caught red-handed with adultery, murder, deceit. And in Psalm 51, 13, he says, at the end of Psalm 51, he says, then I will teach transgressors your way. He says, I am exhibit A of what transgressors are. I can use my own testimony to teach people that you forgive. And sinners will turn back to you. Most scholars say that Psalm 51 was written as David was working on his own confession and repentance after Bathsheba. But Psalm 32, which we've been studying this morning, is the prayer that David wrote to encourage other sinners that forgiveness is possible no matter what. So let's just look at it very briefly. Psalm 32. It begins with this. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who's the, whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. First of all, we have that word blessed. What, did, what does blessed mean? You find it in the Beatitudes, you find it here. 
It means happy. Okay. In other words, if you confess and repent, it helps your happiness quotient. You're happier when your sins are not covered up by you, but they're covered up with Je by Jesus' blood. You get happier. When you repent and confess, you are right with God. And this burden is lifted up your, off your back, and the sun comes out again, and you get happy. Do any of us need a little more happy in our life? Then try confession. It will work. It will help you be happier. David is saying, try repentance, because the end result of repentance is joy. He says the same thing in Psalm 51, verse 12, where he's praying. He says, restore to me what? The joy of your salvation. That's what comes when you repent, is you have joy the joy of his salvation. By the time he writes Psalm 32, he's able to say, I blew it big time, but I called my dad, and he covered me. He paid the price for me to be right with him again. And I am blessed. I am happy again. So in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, David gives a little glimpse of his life before Nathan's faithful visit, fateful visit. He says, when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Okay, there's a description of what happens to you when you don't repent. Anybody want to go there? Not very positive. And you know, sometimes I can almost feel this description being played out, either in my life or the life of other people. And David might have just rationalized and used every excuse in the book, including his kingly right. He might have been telling himself, well, I got away with it. Nobody even knew. It must not be so bad. I'm still king. But in the middle of the night, this is what was going on with David. He felt God's hand. But then in verse 5 of Psalm 32, um, it says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you. In this case, it was Nathan the prophet that helped him. Sometimes we need a friend who will tell us the truth. And if you have a friend that tells you the truth, Listen with an open, humble heart, because they might tell you something that could make you happy again. And I and did not cover up my iniquity, he says. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sins. We all need friends like Nathan. We need truth tellers. That means sometimes we all need to be friends like Nathan. And if you have a real close relationship with someone that you see going off the path, and you know they're not in the Word, the Word is not going to reprove them, then go and love them. Love them by sharing your heart, your concern with them. I want you to look at a very specific phrase in this verse. 
where he says, I did not cover up my iniquity. The guilt was eating him alive. But now, he says, I did not cover it up. Why? Because he was trusting God to be the one who covered it up. Back to verse 1 where it says that. Just like that, you may ask, don't you need to grovel and weep and wail and show God you're really sorry for your sins? Sorry that you blew it? Timothy Keller explained that Jesus was horrifically exposed on the cross. Now, when we have crucifixes in our home or even around our neck, it always has a little loincloth for Jesus. Okay, that's fictional because they stripped him bare. He hung completely exposed on the cross, stripped naked, hanging there, wounded, beaten up for the whole world to see. And on that day, he was stripped bare so he could cover up David's sin, so he could cover up your sin and mine. Bearing the weight of every sin you and I have ever confessed or ever will confess. By his grace, he's there exposed to the Father's hatred of sin. Because God does still hate sin. And the Father turned his face away. If we really think about the correction that God offers to each of us freely, we realize that our sins are covered over because Jesus hung there, exposed. We go without a beating, because Jesus took the beating. Desire of Ages, page 25, explains it this way. And this is quintessential Ellen White at her best. It says, Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins, in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness, in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was his. With his stripes we are healed. No matter what sin we are repenting of, that sin put Jesus on the cross. Exposed to the taunts of the demons, feeling so utterly alone and utterly broken. As the line in the worship song says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sins upon the cross. True repentance is to look at Jesus paying for that sin and being overwhelmed for what he has done for his mercy and grace. And once we understand how much he loves us and how much sin hurts him, we are relationally motivated to repent. We're relationally motivated to make sure we don't go off the path for very long, that we get back on that path by the correction that he offers us in the plan of salvation. God does not require us to grovel to be forgiven. We do not have to go up the steps on our knees. He simply wants us to receive the forgiveness and be grateful and to praise God for his mercy and for his grace. He simply wants us to love him enough 
to make that U-turn. Our scripture of the day, Romans 2, 1 through 4, brings this teaching home. How could we possibly pass judgment on someone else when we live with a daily realization that it is our own sin that put Jesus on the cross? Judging someone else simply shows we do not get the responsibility for what put Jesus where he, what he did for us. Judging others shows contempt. Wow. Do you see that? Or do you show contempt? The context says we show contempt for the riches of his grace, for his kindness, for his tolerance, and his patience. When we judge other people, we're showing contempt of the love of God. If you look at it closely, you realize this is pretty important. We think that we are more just than God when we judge someone else, more fit to judge. It shows that you do not understand what leads to repentance. The last verse here, what leads to repentance? Kindness, God's kindness to us. If we give kindness to people around us that are failing, that are sinning, we're doing it his way. When we're judging them, we're showing contempt of his way. Okay, so we have one more step in our circle, and that is the instruction in righteousness. And I believe, at least for this sermon, the instruction in righteousness is if you long to have someone you know come to repentance. And we all have someone we know that we wish would come to repentance, right? Could be a brother, a sister, a child, a grandchild. If you long to see them repent and accept Jesus, be kind to them. Be especially gentle and kind with them. And if you do, there's a better chance that you will not get in God's way as the Spirit works on their hearts. His kindness leads us to repentance. So when your heart is hard and cold, full of resentment, when you're tempted to judge, you know you need to repent, but you just can't. Go to the cross and look at Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And when you do, your heart will be overwhelmed with gratitude and you'll be on your way to make that U-turn. So, the sin you're struggling with has been paid for. God can be both just and justify you. Remember how much he loves you. Remember how much he's paid to save you. And remember how kind he is. And just call. Call your dad. He'll take care of it.